Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by the AISC Design Guide Series. Design Guide 32, AISC N690 Appendix N9, Design of Steel Plate Composite Walls, is available now. Visit AISC.org slash design guides to see what's new and download a free copy today. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Engineering and Research Department at AISC. My guest today is Lawrence Kruth, Vice President of Engineering and Research at AISC. Larry received his Bachelor of Science degree in Civil Engineering Technology from the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown, and then went on to work for Douglas Steel Fabricating Corporation for 32 years. Larry has served on many AISC committees, including the Committee on Specifications and several of its task committees, the Research Committee, the Safety Committee, and the Research Council on Structural Connections, as well as serving as a member of the AISC Board of Directors. Larry is a professional engineer in Michigan and Pennsylvania, and was also an adjunct professor at Michigan State University. Welcome, Larry. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy TC meeting week to sit down and talk to me. You're welcome, Margaret. Okay, so I like to start by asking people what they wanted to be when they grew up. <laughs> what did I want to be when I grew up? I think probably the interesting story about that is when I decided I wanted to be an engineer. It started one day when I was sitting in a parking lot with my father watching them build a new elementary school. Oh, okay. Well, how old were you? Probably it was when I was about the fourth grade. Okay, so pretty young. Mm-hmm. And I asked my father specifically how they knew what size beams went into the building. You thought of that in the fourth grade. <laughs> well, in any case, my father said that's what engineers know how to do. And I thought, well, I'd like to do that. What was your father? He was an engineer. Oh, he was? Yes. Okay, well, that's a, probably a pretty important piece of the story. Uh, he did mainly site work for a lot of the mills in the Chicago area. Okay. So that was the day, or the beginning anyway. Probably was the beginning, and I decided at that point and uh, worked in that direction ever since the fourth grade. Uh, I see that you started working when you were 12. Yes. You had your first job when you were 12. What was your first job? My first full-time job was walking ponies at the Pittsburgh Zoo. (laughs) That sounds like a fantastic first job. It was a very strenuous job, a lot of hard work, because I worked uh, six days a week. I would uh, ride my bike about three miles through the town, across a bridge, across the Allegheny River to the Pittsburgh Zoo, and I would work eight hours walking ponies. I paid $2 a day. I did that every day except for Wednesday, because on Wednesday, I had a weekly paper route I delivered, so I ended up working seven days a week. It's very industrious at 12. Well, I think that's why I didn't adjust to retirement very well. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have a question about that later, too. So when you started your career, after you got through college, you worked for a few engineering firms, but then you soon landed at a fabricator. What made you choose the fabricator career path as an engineer? The need to have a job in reality. (laughs) Uh, it, It was a situation where I was working actually for a consulting engineering firm, and I was at, stationed at a nuclear power plant in Cincinnati. consulting engineering firm uh, was actually thrown off the job site and brought uh, somebody else in to complete the job. So I had a family, no job. I had left Pittsburgh prior to that because I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I was working for consulting engineering firms in Pittsburgh and was transferred to Cincinnati. Before I left, I had contacted trying to stay in Pittsburgh. There were no more, no more work in, in Pittsburgh, and that was in the early 80s. 
So it ended up that I contacted a headhunter in Pittsburgh at that time, and he had a month's worth of Sunday Pittsburgh presses, which is the only way you could find a job then. There wasn't any internet then. Sure. Mm -hmm. And he gave them to me, and I looked through them, and there was an ad in there for a structural steel fabricator in Grand Ledge, Michigan, looking for a structural engineer. That's how I ended up getting involved in my first fabrication job. And then you went on to work for Douglas Steel for over 30 years before retiring in 2015. Yes. So why did you decide to retire when clearly you have too much energy for retirement? Well, it's a, it's a simple situation. There were a number of us at Douglas Steel who were close to the same age. The shareholders for Douglas Steel always retired at 59 and a half. I stayed a little longer because I wanted to work a little longer and there were, I had to get people in line to do the work I was doing. But if I didn't leave when I did, we would have had two shareholders retiring in the same year, which would have put a financial burden on the company. So I made sure I left first before the other people retired. But then you needed something else to do. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you came to AISC, and you've been here for about six months now as VP and Head of the Engineering and Research Department. What has surprised you most about the job or about AISC, seeing it from this side? Probably what has surprised me most is the great group of talented people that are there. Well, it sounds strange, but that, you know, I walked in, I knew a lot of the people there, being a volunteer for so many years. But when you're working with them day after day, you realize how much talent they have and how much work I don't have to do because they get everything done. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a great place to be at, <laughs> as the boss. Mm -hmm. You stepped into Charlie Carter's shoes as head of engineering research. Was it difficult to step into that role after Charlie, who had been at AISC for his entire career? It was scary. You know, you think about everything Charlie's done. You know, Charlie had a PhD. I don't have a PhD. And I was really concerned how I was going to be able to fill the position that Charlie had. And Charlie made it easy for me. He made it easy for me by making it hard for me. That's a strange <laughs> way to make it. He made it easy because he didn't tell me what to do. He basically made it clear, this is your job, do it the way you want to do it. I'm not going to have you do it the way I did it. Here are some things that need to be taken care of, just take care of them. And stepped out of my way. Well, that's probably the best thing he could have done. Yes, it is. It's the best thing he possibly could have done. But it's also the scariest thing to go through. But after being there for six months now, now I have a really good feel. That was the right thing to do, and I feel comfortable. Uh, and you've been involved with AISC as a member of the industry, a member of our technical committees. You were on the board of directors, and now you're a member of the staff. So how has your perspective of AISC evolved through all these different roles? Well, I think over the years of being actively involved with AISC, I realized what a great organization it was. And I always liked being a volunteer. Why I was a volunteer is because I always felt that if I'm not involved in making decisions, I have no right to complain. Yeah. That doesn't stop most people, but it's <laughs> nice that you realize that. <laughs> well, at this point right now, I'm, what I'm doing now, I'm even more involved and I have more control over that. And I get to listen to complaints from other areas and understand other points of view other than just mine. Do you think that Larry is the most popular name among AISC staff and technical committees? <laughs> it's, 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 it's very strange. It is, pro it is very rare for me to sit on an AIC meeting without having another Larry in the room. At least one. Probably At least one. one. At least one. Yeah. And we had one small task group 
that was made up of, I believe, four Larrys and three Toms. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt that. Mm-hmm. So once I finally got you to listen to the podcast multiple years ago, I think you became their biggest fan. Did you ever think you'd be in my interview chair? No, I didn't think I'd be sitting here. I never thought I'd be working for AISC either. So it was a totally different change. Uh, by being your biggest fan, I think I, when you told me that time, I had to listen to one. That's all it took was one. And once I listened to one, I knew I had to listen to all of them. And they're just very fascinating. Thank you. I think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I always have fascinating people to talk to. Mm-hmm. So, What piece of advice do you wish that you had had at the beginning of your career? The one thing that I think that is realizing how much, as you grow in your career, there's management skills you have to develop. It's not, it's not technical. It's If you're going to grow in your career, you have to develop those management skills. Yeah. And having to learn what those are and how to make that work and how to deal and relate to people rather than numbers is a totally different aspect that you never really think about early in your career. Yeah, at the beginning you feel like you need to learn all the technical stuff. Right. It takes a while to move past that. One of your responsibilities at Douglas Steel as head of the engineering department was advancing technology. Where do you see technology taking the structural engineering world in the next 10 years? Well, I think it's going to be a dramatic change. You know, I think things are changing very rapidly throughout the whole structural engineering and fabrication industry and erection industry. I think we're going to find, as people are relying more and more on computers, more mundane tasks are going to become automated. From structural engineering, I think that's dangerous in a way because structural engineers have to have a feel for how loads move through their buildings. You can't rely on the computer telling you how that works. Computer can do the grunt work, and I think that's being done now, but we can't rely on it to be a black box. I see technology transfer being the, the biggest innovation. Look at what's happening with model transfers at this point. I see that uh, structural engineering could become more than just uh, a structural engineering service. I think you could be the structural contractor on the job where you provide design, fabrication, and erection of the structural frame, similar to the way mechanical engineers deal with it now where they for HVAC systems on a project. I think it's a real innovation that we could be experiencing over the next few years as things grow and relationships start to grow together where the structural engineers realize fabricators and erectors are, are part of the team and they're not enemies working against each other. We're here to do a project and help the owner save money. And that's how projects always work best. Yes. Everybody's working together. You've also always been passionate about safety. How have you brought that passion with you to AISC? That's interesting because one of the first things I did, probably within the first day or two after I became an AISC employee, I talked to Charlie Carter and we made arrangements to purchase an AED for in the office. And that's a defibrillator? Uh, automatic electronic defibrillator. Since that time, uh, before the most recent steel conference last March in February, probably 90% of AIC staff are now first aid CPR AED trained. Really? Yes. I'm not in the Chicago office on a um, permanent basis. Mm-hmm. I don't work in Chicago, so I did not know that they have been trained. Yes. And you're welcome to get trained too. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'd be really interesting. Mm-hmm. So what do you see as the next big innovation in structural engineering? I think an innovation is going to happen, and it's going to happen 
is 3D printing a structural steel. Really? I really think so. I That'll mean, be it, amazing. The complex connections we run into, the complex things that architects are dreaming of, they're so hard to fabricate, so hard to make, but if you could model them mm -hmm. and print them, you know, it'll create a totally different market that we're looking at now. Mm -hmm. Fabricators won't be the same as we're looking at now. Erectors won't be the same as we're looking at now. Engineers won't be the same as we're looking at now. Right. I and mean, it's going to be a blended market with a totally different job descriptions for everybody. We, it's, we can't even think of what that would be. I mean, if I think about what's happened in my lifetime, with computers. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. I would have told people even when I was in college how much power I would have that a cell phone even existed and how much power I would have in that cell phone. Right. It would have been unthinkable. It's unthinkable. You would have a computer that powerful. It's totally unthinkable. So how can I think about where that future is going to be? I think it's going to happen because right now you just can't print structural steel. Well, sure you can't. There might be a way in the future we just don't know. So it's more like you know, say structural engineering but it's a whole different Way to think, way about, to think about the whole industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the way everybody will interact and work together right. will be different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. So you've been an adjunct professor at Michigan State University. Mm -hmm. What did you teach? It was a capstone uh, class, engineering class, and I took the structural portion. Basically had them complete a complete design project for structural steel. Mm -hmm. uh, first class I taught was designing a building. The second one was a bridge, a pedestrian bridge. I warned students before they came into the class that this will probably be the most difficult class you have in your whole career as a student. But they probably learned the most. They all told me that at the end because the when most I... practical stuff. I demanded that they dig through the building codes, find the loads, find out how to distribute them, find out how to size members and realize every size doesn't need to be unique and why every size doesn't need to be unique. Mm -hmm. And I had them produce construction documents included design drawings and specifications for the project. I always felt that I wanted, I told them, I want you to be able to walk out the door and be able to walk in somewhere, get a job and know immediately what to do. Oh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> and so you, maybe you just answered this, but what do you hope is the most important thing that your students take away from your class? That's the most important thing. I wanted them to be acquainted with what they really were going to be doing when they left and be able to contribute right away instead of spending six months to a year just figuring out what am I supposed to do. <laughs> Did any of them say, this is what I'm going to be doing? And the funny thing was the last class I taught, I was probably about two to three weeks before the end of the class and I had one student that would always contact me and want to meet with me an extra hour before the class started. One day I went in there and with the questions he was asking, I said, walk down the hall with me. There was a portion of the building that Douglas Steel had erected and the steel was exposed permanently. And I said, do you see that? That is how a beam attaches to a girder. That's how a girder attaches to the column. He never even had a vision of that. And this is somebody who was going to be an engineer in three weeks. And that's not unusual. I know. That you don't have any concept of those things. And then to be able to, to actually look up and see it. And it is, you're like, oh, that's how that all goes together. I figured it out in the fourth grade, remember? <laughs> <laughs> you did. You figured it out early. Uh, you've also been involved with the Student Steel Bridge Competition for many years. Uh, how was this year's competition? It was just about a month ago, right? Yes. It was very, very good. I mean, I, I was amazed at how smoothly it ran. Where was it this year? It was Corvallis, Oregon, Oregon State. 
it, they had beautiful weather for us. Asked them if that's the way it was always in Oregon, blue sky, sunny every day, and and they said, of course it is. And, is that true? Uh, no. Does it ever <laughs> rain there most of the time? Uh, basically, every other time anybody visited there, it was raining all the time. It was the only time we were there it was beautiful is when we were there. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, so, and the competition was great. It, it amazes me every year to see how great of a job the students do. It is crazy. I've been a judge a couple times, especially when you see how fast, because it's timed, how mm-hmm. fast they have to put everything. And some of those teams is amazing how fast they can put that bridge together. And all the new design challenges they yes. introduce every year. So it's never the same thing twice. My favorite area, which might seem strange to people, is the loading station. Oh, you're always at the loading station? I'm always at the loading station because I always look for lateral instabilities. And I will generally, as I start to see an instability, I will generally stop the team from loading, walk them back, and show them the instability in their bridge. I said, if you see that in real life, that's not good. So I want them to understand this is what's happening and this is why it's happening so you understand how the loads are moving through your structure and what's happening and how it causes lateral instability and how you just put a little bar in that area. It'll gone away. And then do you go ahead and load it up? And yeah, I let them load it up. until it, it and I, I watch it. And if, I, if they're going to get close to failure, I try to be what I can, warn them. You know, they always worry when I stop them to show them this. You stopping us from loading? I said no. I just wanted you to learn. It's the best way to learn. Mm-hmm. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen happen at a competition? Craziest thing? I'm going to probably mention two things. Last year, probably one of the best bridges I have ever seen at any of the competitions, and I've been involved probably close to 25 years in a steel bridge competition, was at nationals. They were doing extremely well. We load the bridges. You put 2,500 pounds on at uh, angles that weigh 25 pounds a piece. And when they put the last angle on, the bridge failed. The last 25 pounds. The last 25 pounds. Yes. The students did a really, is a crazy situation. The bridge just failed. It just collapsed. But what was their attitude? Their attitude was, I guess we know what not to do next year. It wasn't. They were upset. They took it as a learning experience, which is the whole idea. Which is the whole point of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I understand next year it's going to be at the University of Illinois. Yes. In Champaign-Urbana, which is my alma mater. So, so you, can, you can be there. I would love to. It's a lot of fun. I've, I've been involved for so many years. And the other craziest thing that happened, we had an, had one team a few years ago. They were loading their bridge and it collapsed. And I went and looked, and it was a three-eighths-inch diameter bolt that failed in double shear. I looked at the bolt, and I pulled out my cell phone, went and calculated how much load that should have taken a double shear. It should have taken about nine kips. So... I said, and that the bolt shear. The, the bolt, shear? and I have, a, and I can show you a picture of it. Here. See. I have a picture <laughs> of it. It double sheared. It's, it's a double shear failure of the bolt. Uh, it's because it failed in two places, two planes. So I said, this is unusual. You know, this should have taken nine kips. I asked them where they got their bolts. They said, well, they said what ended up happening is we've been practicing with our bridge, and the threads getting messed up on. The bolts we were using. Driving on the way to the competition, we stopped at Home Depot and bought a box of bolts. I said, show me the box. They were Chinese bolts. And I said, I think you just learned another lesson uh, about counterfeit bolts. So they weren't ASTM? No. A307. They weren't. No. That was a good lesson. Yes. But too bad they had to learn it during the competition. Well, again, it's it's a learning experience, (laughs) which is what the whole thing is. You learn from it and learn what you shouldn't be doing and learn how things fail. You begin to see how loads are moving through your structures. Yeah, that would have been a great thing to know 
mm-hmm. to learn in college, even if you don't learn in your classes. You, right. just, you learn it through those types of mm-hmm. practical things. Uh, you were named the Engineer of the Year in 2011 by the Structural Engineers Association of Michigan. What did that mean to you? Actually, there's more of a story to that than I think I've told anybody else. Well, this is the perfect place to share it. <laughs> Structural Engineers Association of Michigan, uh, every year, will give out awards for Structural Engineer of the Year. I would get mailings about it often and stuff. I never paid much, any attention to it. So I, I would always go to their annual meeting. I went to the annual meeting, and I had done a presentation that night at their annual meeting. And it got time for awards. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, no big thing. I got the award. Were you shocked? I was shocked. <laughs> then I found out it was two people at Douglas Steele that nominated me. Of course, they never told me they did it. So do they always do that when they give the award out? They surprise the person? They don't no, that, that was a, usually the person knows way ahead of time they're getting in the award. I had no clue I was getting the award that night. So they just lured you there under false pretenses? To well, they knew the I was going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> I already volunteered to do the presentation, so I, sort of I was going to be there anyway, and they just decided to keep it secret. Were you just shocked? Yes. Yes, I never expected it. First of all, Douglas Seals in the Lansing area, which is central Michigan, usually everybody who had gotten in the past is from the eastern part of Michigan, closer to Detroit, and I figured it usually went to somebody who worked for a consulting engineering firm in the Detroit area, and I never never would have guessed. So were the people that nominated you, were they there? Yes. they Actually, I drove them there. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that worked out great for them all the way yes, around. Yes. I hear you're a big Star Trek fan. Yes. What is it about Star Trek that intrigues you? Well, probably I'm a bigger fan of the original series than I am of the other ones. I, I like The Next Generation, but after that, it sort of fell off the map. Enterprise was good for a while. Never got into uh, Voyager, though. They violated a rule in Voyager. Did they? What was it? Yes. They landed the ship on a planet. If you think about the premise for Star Trek, the original series, and why they had the transporter, is the fact that the ship was built in space. Mm-hmm. It could not take gravity loads. And because it couldn't take gravity loads, it could never land. So they had to find some way to get to the planet's surface other than landing. Right, so that's why they did their transporter. Yes. Okay. But yeah, you're right. They never landed. You can't. On a planet. If you think about it, if it was built in space and it never took any gravity loads, it would fall apart once it got gravity loads. And they did that on Voyager? Yes. I I watched it until they landed. Once they landed the ship, I stopped watching the show. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What was your favorite favorite episode of all time? Probably the favorite episode from the original series is Sitting on the Edge of Forever. It was a case where they landed on a planet, transported to a planet. <laughs> Transport. It wasn't a shuttlecraft, so they, they, they transported the planet. There was an unusual device there. Because of stuff that took place, fucking too complicated with the story, McCoy jumps through this window and ends up in the past somewhere. So Spock and, and Kirk jump through and end up trying to find McCoy. They end up in 1930s um, Earth in a rescue mission. The, the whole premise is the person who runs a rescue mi- mission, who happened to be Joan Collins, is a pacifist. And Spock, through his investigation, determines that she had to die. If she didn't, there would have been a big, strong pacifist movement in the United States. And we would never entered World War II, and the Nazis would have taken over the world. And, of course, Kirk falls in love with Jones Collins. 
Yes, watch yes, Joan, let her die. Let her die. And they find McCoy and they all come back. And it's the only Star Trek original series episode where profanity is used. Yeah. I won't ask you to use it here. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what was said. You can cut it out. Okay. Right there. okay. Kirk said, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> no, I've never seen that one. I'll have to. It's a very good episode. I'll have to go find it. One, one thing I didn't mention, and there is a part of Spock justifies what's going on as Kirk has to do this, is he talks about a futurist novelist who uh, wrote that when he would get into a situation, his statement was, how can I help? And I think you know, his philosophy had always stuck with me. Whenever I got involved with anything, I always figured out, how can I help? Not, not what's wrong. How can I help fix it? That's the best attitude, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you got that from Star Trek? Yes, because Star Trek was about people and not about space. So now that you've had some time to settle into your position, do you have big plans for the future of the Engineering and Research Department at AISC? You know, it's sort of a unusual situation walking into a department that was run so well and organized so well for many, many years. And Charlie will be thrilled to hear you say that. And people have asked me, what are you going to change? In fact, they ask me that repeatedly, what do you want to change? <laughs> and it's hard to, to think about changing, you know, major changes, more about little things. And obviously, we've had some major changes in our education department that have occurred since I've been here with Nancy Gaflin retiring yes. and Christina Harbour taking over as uh, director of education. So there will be some major changes in that department. You know, what I've always looked at in education is I always thought that we ought to find some way to get ourselves more related to students at the university level. Mm -hmm. That would be a goal I would set for myself. I'm not sure how we would do it. I'm not exactly sure how we would accomplish that with the staff and with what we're able to do. But I think if we can relate to students and show them how important AISC is to them at the university level while they're students, they will then become steel evangelists for us, which we don't have, we won't really have that now because we're just trying to get on the edges of that and trying right. to get them to that point. That's probably one of the major things I'd like, like to see happen. You know, there are a lot of things that have happened I worked with as being oversight and being involved uh, for the engineering and research department for, on the board of directors and also being a member of the uh, research committee for many, many years, is I, my goal was always to steer our research away from pure research to research that will benefit the industry immediately. And I think I'll just continue to do that mm -hmm. and from a different direction than what I did it before. Um, it's not that I wasn't able to direct it somewhat before, but I might be able to direct that a little more clearly now than I was before. Uh, Specification and code of standard practice that is pretty well established. The way Charlie has set that up, it works extremely well. The way it is, the way it is right now, and the solution center is just a success story in and of its own. Mm -hmm. Those are some lofty goals. I'll look forward to seeing how this all rolls out. Well, I always set really lofty goals and visions for myself. Really tough things to try to accomplish, and strive to make that happen. Right. You know, don't know if it's going to happen or not, but at least we'll get closer, I hope. Right, and when you aim really high, even if you come in a little below that, that's still a mm -hmm. lot of progress, mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of accomplishment. So um, can you tell me what's the worst idea you've ever had or well, biggest, biggest failure? I think yeah, I think, I think the biggest failure would probably be an easier way to talk about it. 
which a failure, which I think turned into a success, which I think is uh, what a lot of failures turn into. Many years ago, in my early career as a fabricator, uh, we had a design-build job for a convention center to design-build the trusses on the, on the project. And these trusses span, I'm doing this off the top of my head, I'll say roughly 160 feet. You know, they, they were clear-spanned. It's design-build. Now, Kepermander, early in my career, uh, this was not done with computer analysis. This was done with a graphical analysis of the loads on the truss. Okay. And one of the criteria that we were giving, we were given loads, is we were given that these trusses uh, could not deflect any more than six inches. Now they were going to hang a, uh, a movable partition in this convention center that would hang from these trusses so they could not let the bottom of this partition deflect more than they had an adjustment in for six inches. Well, keep in mind, designed this truss graphically without a computer. So we had to find a way to calculate deflection of a truss as well. Well, there is a method of doing it uh, numerically. It's a rather simple method of doing it. But I designed the trusses symmetrical. So because they were symmetrical about the center, when I modeled it and ran the calculations by hand, uh, I calculated it for only half the span of the truss because they were symmetrical. Mm -hmm. Not thinking that I really need to double my numbers to get the deflection to make sure my me members were large enough to take care of the deflection. After the trusses were built and erected, we caught the mistake. So what do you do at that point? It was a major error. What do you do? Not tell anybody about it. What do you do? I wrote a letter to the uh, general contractor on the project explaining to him what we did wrong. Did and you have to go tell your boss first and oh say, yes, I yes, messed this yes, up. Yes, that's, yes, that's, of course. that's always the worst part. Yes. <laughs> but he agreed, sure. we need to write a letter. We need to stand up for what we did wrong. Right. Um, and what we did is we wrote the letter, explained them what, what took place. Now, luckily, the uh, movable partition had not been purchased at that time, just out for bids. So we offered to pay the extra cost so the bottom of that movable partition would be uh, uh, able to be adjusted for 12 inches instead of 6. As it turned out, because we were honest about it, the general contractor never sent us a bill for the extra cost. They uh, just wrote a basically an addendum to the bid telling people that instead of using 6 inches, use 12, and the bids all came in at 12, and they just awarded the contract based on the 12, and they never sent us a bill for it. Wow. So it's basically one of those ethical situations where you make a mistake, no matter how bad it is, which I felt it was a terrible mistake. I didn't think I was going to have a job after that. Own up to it, and in the end, being honest will pay off. It does. Well, at least there was nothing life safety involved. No, no, there wasn't anything yeah. life safety. So even though well. you thought it was a terrible mistake at the time, but none of us like to make mistakes. No, no, and then, and and when you're younger in your career and you have to go on up to that, it is mm -hmm. it's hard, but it's always the best policy to get it, you know, out in front of it as quick mm -hmm. as you can. Say that you turned that into a win. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out that way anyway. So yeah. I felt. Okay. Yeah. Who inspires you? I really think probably my best inspiration was my father. He was an engineer, but he did it the hard way. He was in the Navy, and after he got the Navy, he went to school to become a draftsman. 
And after doing that for a few years, he realized he was not a very good draftsman. <laughs> <laughs> so he went to night school to become an engineer. What kind of an engineer? Uh, it, was a, it was a civil engineer. Civil. civil engineer. I was the oldest of six kids, so he had six kids while he went to night oh, school. Oh, he already had all six kids yes. when he was doing this. Yes. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. It basically took him, well, I didn't have all six kids, it happened over a period of time, because it basically took him 14 years to get his degree. Wow. Uh, persistent. But he was persistent. Yeah. I mean, he would go to work in the morning, uh, work all morning, go to, go to school at night, come home, uh, and then have to do homework oh, and deal work. with stuff with the family at home, then go back to work the next day. That was his procedure he did for all those years. And saw the perseverance he went through to do that. So that's a great example. It was a great example to show how you just strive, you can't succeed. Yeah, just keep going. Keep on going. I love that. Uh, What's your biggest pet peeve? Probably people being late. (laughs) That's good to know since you're my new boss. (laughs) Yeah, I have a tendency to be early for everything. I try to be early as much as I possibly can. If I arrive on time, I feel like I'm late. Uh, in fact, when I do conference calls, I'm usually on the conference call five minutes before it starts. So that's probably the biggest thing is people being late really bother me a lot. Okay. Noted. Mm-hmm. What would you consider your greatest life accomplishment at this point in your career or your life, knowing that you still got a long way to go? <laughs> well, considering I retired once, that didn't work. Uh, it didn't take. So. No, no. I the failed retirement. But I would say I would say the biggest that was your greatest failure. <laughs> <Yes>. Retirement. <laughs> well, I don't know because I ended up here in right. this position, which I feel is my greatest life accomplishment. I never, ever, in my wildest dreams, would have ended up thinking I'd be in this position. It's amazing where life takes you. Yes, things you never expect. Mm-hmm. So I would just think that my greatest accomplishment at this time is being able to be in this position, being able to help steer the industry for the future, having a great group of people here at AISC that are working here that I know I can rely on to get things done. It's just a, it's a great feeling. Well, that's wonderful. I think those are all my questions for you, Larry. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you for taking the time to meet with me. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, visit us on the web at AISC.org slash webinars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.